My son is out in California, my older son, and he's been having car trouble as of late. He had a car that he got back in college and it had 135,000 miles on it. And he's in LA, which is not nice to cars and it was beat up. And he's been having so much trouble that I finally just sent my car to him. Just put it on a transport and sent it out to LA so that he can get to work without stressing, but, but more importantly, so I can stop worrying about him all the time. Because is there anything more irritating than, than having car trouble? I mean, car trouble, it's, it like it's almost like computer trouble because you, you feel like you should understand why it's happening, but you don't understand why it's happening unless you're a mechanic type. But when you have car trouble, particularly when you're in a hurry to get somewhere, isn't that frustrating? Really? I recently heard a story about a guy having car trouble. And he ended up looking at things a bit differently. Let me tell you the story. It was a, it was a fall day in, uh, in New York City. The guy's name was George Keith. Just bought a brand new BMW. And he was driving into the city, drove through Central Park. And then his, his car unexpectedly shifted down into first gear. If you've ever driven a stick shift and you downshift, you never downshift into first gear, you downshift into second gear, but you downshift into first gear and the car just almost ground to a stop. So he was really aggravated and he drove his car back home and made an appointment for the next morning at the dealership. He made an appointment for 7 a.m. So he figured if he got to the dealership by 7 a.m., then he could get out of there quickly enough and make an eight o'clock meeting that he had scheduled in downtown Manhattan, in midtown Manhattan, uh, the next morning. Anyway, or downtown Manhattan. He got up the next morning, got up really early, made his way all the way to the dealership, actually got there just before 7 o'clock. But the mechanics wouldn't work on his car at 7 o'clock. They refused to do any work before 8 o'clock. So he got there, he set this whole thing up, he's got an 8 o'clock meeting, he's sitting there in the mechanic shop, and they said it'll take an hour until we even look at your car. Well, eight o'clock came, the repair literally took three minutes, it was just an adjustment. So George was understandably steamed. So after the mechanic was done, George got into his car, he sped out of the lot, he raced down the expressway to get to his meeting, which was scheduled on the 73rd floor of Tower Two of the World Trade Center. I forgot to tell you this part of the story. It was Tuesday, September 11th. Here's how George tells the story. This is a true story. I was sitting on the expressway in traffic when I saw smoke coming out of the top of the first tower that was hit and turned on the radio to hear that a small plane had crashed into it. So you know, this is before anybody knew what was happening. At that point, I glanced behind me at the Hudson River and saw a jet flying lower than I've ever seen. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And then it smashed into the second tower. The fireball was enormous. I've never seen anything like it. I'm sure you get the point. George Keith was never so happy to have had car trouble and had such a stressful morning as he was that morning. That morning, he saw the glass as half full. Mm, what kind of person are you? Are you a glass as half full person? Or are you a glasses-half-empty person? You've heard that expression before, right? Everybody's heard that expression. Yeah. 
I like that expression. It's simple, it's clear, it shines a light on the question. Okay, how do you look at the world? How do you look at the world? When you see stuff, what goes through your brain? Are you generally a positive person or are you generally a negative person? You know Eeyore, right? Eeyore is the definition of a negative person. Negative people, you know who you are, negative people. You know exactly who you are. I'm looking through the crowd to see my negative people. You call yourself realists. We know the truth. You always look at the dark side of things, right? Oh, wow, it's sunny outside. Eh, it won't last. Oh, wow, it's raining. Yeah, it's always raining. In the summer, oh, my gosh, it's hot. Yeah, it's too hot. In the winter, wow, it's beautiful. It's too cold. Am I right? If you're negative, you find the dark cloud in every silver lining. Those negative half-empty people. Ugh. But before we get caught up in pointing fingers or throwing rocks, don't do that. Why? Because if we're being honest, we're all like this sometimes. We, we can't really help it. Every day in our lives, we're led down this path. We live in a culture that is sort of set up and premised on the idea that we're never supposed to be satisfied with anything. We're never supposed to be content about anything. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, given our economy and, and the way things work. If we're all satisfied and content, we wouldn't have to buy new things as often as we do. And if we didn't buy new things as often as we do, we wouldn't have an economy. Our economy would slow to a crawl. So the culture tells us you can't possibly be happy with the things that you have right now. You need to keep on chasing the next thing, that, that next thing that'll make you happy, that elusive happiness that you can find in the next different thing or, or possession or condition or city or situation or, or place. I mean, we're always promised that happiness is just around the corner. Now, I've spent my whole life thinking I was a glasses half empty, a glasses half full person. See, a glass is half full person finds the good inside, the bad. The glass is half full person looks at an unfavorable situation and sees a bright side. The glass is half full person thinks that every dark cloud does have a silver lining. The glass is half full person looks at the bright side of a dark life. Now with that said, a couple days ago, I was talking to a friend who made me consider another Option. I want to show you this. There's a little illustration I've decided to uh, attempt to pull off here. So let's give it a shot. All right. Y'all see that? My friend said to me, describe this glass. I said, all right. It is a glass and it has a blue liquid in it. And it looks like it is half full. Okay. Then he did this. What do you think now? Is it empty? Yeah, I said, yeah, it's empty. He said, is it possible that it's still full? I don't see how it's possible it's still full. And he said, well, think about this. A glass doesn't need to be filled with water or Gatorade to be full. A glass is always full of something. Okay. Any arguments? Why am I talking about this stuff? Well, because this week is what? It's Thanksgiving. 
This week is the official beginning of the holiday season. I know some people start at Halloween, but I know a lot of people aren't allowed to decorate until after Thursday. But it does make it the perfect time of year to think about the way that God wants us to look at our lives this week, this Thanksgiving week, but also every week. God wants us to live lives of thanksgiving. God wants us to practice thanksgiving. See what I did there? You can see this throughout the scriptures. Throughout the Psalms, remember, the Psalms are God's songbook. King David, the author of most of the Psalms, David sang often of his thankfulness to God. Here's just a few things that David said or sang. Psalm 106.1, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love and yours forever. Or let us come before him with thanksgiving. And Psalm 95 is a bunch of examples. I don't want to run through them all with you. Those will get you there. Remember that also the, the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews. We talk about him that way because we don't know who he is. We don't know his identity. I told you before it's my first question on my list of things to ask God when I get to heaven. Who wrote Hebrews, by the way? I don't know. We may be surprised. But here's what he said. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe. Now, the Apostle Paul spoke frequently of the way in which the believers were thankful to God, were to be thankful to God. For, for instance, he told the believers in the church in Colossae to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when we sing, when we worship together in song, that's what we should have. We should have thankfulness in our hearts. Paul also said to the church in Colossae in Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And then Paul took this admonition to be thankful even further than that. He explained how the thankfulness of the believer was not only to be expressed in the desirable good times, but that thankfulness was also to be expressed no matter what the circumstances. So in Paul's letter to Timothy, Timothy was a young church planter that, that was one of Paul's protégés. Paul said this in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. To the believers of the Church in Philippi, Paul clarified even further. He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with what? Thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. He also said something similar to the believers in the city of Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. See, Paul explained that God wants his people to be thankful, not only when everything is going well, but to be thankful at all times. God wants us to be thankful in all circumstances. So here's a question. Do we do that? Do we give thanks to God all the time, even in the bad times? Do we practice not just occasional thanksgiving, but 24-7, 365 thanks living? We don't, right? I don't. You don't. We need to do something about that. 
So let's pray, and then we'll get everything sorted. Father God, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you again for friendly faces, for people who love each other, for people who love you. Thank you for the difference that we're making in this community, for the difference that we strive to make as we go forward. Thank you for this being a place where we can put aside our differences, we can put aside all the noise from the world and come together for one purpose and one purpose alone, to know you better, to get closer to you. God, as we continue on this morning, as we study your scripture, we ask that you would use it to transform our hearts and minds and draw us even closer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme here today is that God has called us to live in a state of constant thanksgiving. Constant thanksgiving for all that God's given us. And he wants us to be this way even in the times that seem bad. Even in those, we'll call them wilderness times. And to understand God's message, today we're going to be looking at a story of a man who spent a great deal of his life in the wilderness. That man's name was Moses. Moshe in the Hebrew. In our text today, we're going to be looking at the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, a little background on Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is found in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. It is the fifth book of the Hebrew Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it's the fifth book. It's part of what we call in Hebrew the Torah or the, or the law. And it's a book that was written by Moses. Now, Moses writes Deuteronomy, and in it, it contains a repetition of the codified or the written down law of Israel. Now, today's chapter is known as an exhortation. What's an exhortation? It's kind of a bible word that means a speech that urges somebody to take action. That's an exhortation. Clean up your room. That's an exhortation. Mm, short one. So the exhortation in Deuteronomy 8 is focused on examples of God's care and the judgments that his people experienced in the wilderness upon leaving Egypt. And Deuteronomy 8 is written to remind God's people of how God blesses them in the wilderness. And it's also written as a cautionary tale to caution God's people to never forget about his blessings when times are good. Because God is the source of all good times and the source of the wilderness experiences. So today we're going to read Deuteronomy 8. And we're going to break it down into four parts. And in these four parts, we're going to see four different truths. Here they are. Number one, God leads us through the wilderness. Number two, God trains us in the wilderness. Number three, God blesses us in the wilderness or after the wilderness. And number four, God doesn't want us to forget numbers one, two, and three. And as we understand these four truths, we can begin the practice of thanks living that God desires from us. All right, everybody got that? That's what we're doing today. Let's jump in. God leads us through the wilderness. So how can we practice thanks living when God brings us through the wilderness? So let's go ahead and read verse 1. Deuteronomy 8.1. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today. Remember, this is Moses writing. He's writing God's word, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promises on an oath to your ancestors. Verse 2, remember how the Lord God led you 
all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. All right, so the lesson is about dealing with and properly understanding wilderness experiences. Moses here was referring to the situation that God's people had just experienced. When God freed his people, the Israelites, from their 400-year bondage in Egypt, he appointed Moses to guide them out of Egypt and lead them to the land that God had promised them. That's why we call it the promised land. Now, standing in between Egypt and the promised land was the vast Sinai Desert. And if you could describe that Sinai Desert, that Sinai wilderness in what word, what would be the one word you would use to describe the wilderness? The word is derived from the name of the place, Sinai Wilderness. What's the word? Wild. Yeah, that's where we get the word wild. It was wild. It was uncivilized. It was harsh. It was a desert. It was hot. It was inhospitable. At night, there was no light. It was pitch dark. During the day, the sun was baking and blinding. It didn't have good facilities. It didn't have good food. It wasn't comfortable. It was unpleasant. And the people complained about it. The people even pleaded with Moses to take them back to Egypt. Can you imagine how that would have played out? Imagine if all the, all the Israelites, after being in the desert for a few days, just kind of all went back up to Egypt. And they're like, um, sorry about those plagues, Mr. Pharaoh, sir. Um, and that whole drowning your army in the Red Sea thing. Um, no hard feelings, right? Uh -huh. yeah, no. Even though God had shown the extent of his miraculous power that was necessary to get them out of there in the first place to superintend their escape, the people had forgotten all about it when they turned their attention to how much they missed their creature comforts, how much they missed their comfort zone that they had as slaves under Egypt's yoke. Apparently, we human beings have always been a little bit self-destructive. But as we've seen time and time again, even though we don't know what's best for us, God knows what's best for us. And God's told us that he always knows better. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, Remember, prophets speak on behalf of God. So God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In other words, you might not understand everything God's doing in your life, but it's not for you to understand because you don't have the mind of God. God is the mind of God. You need to understand that. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that appears to be right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Sometimes we look at things and we go, that seems like a good idea. But it isn't. Anyway, the Israelites hated the wilderness. They complained about it the entire time. They were sure that God had forsaken, that God had turned his back on them. But God hadn't. Indeed, God had blessed them in the wilderness. Because if you pay attention, you'll see it. It was while they were in the wilderness that God gave them his promise that they would live on and they would multiply and they would obtain the inheritance that, that he intended for them. And it was in the wilderness that God showed his power as he kept them safe. And as he led them through their fearful wilderness adventure while he was equipping them for the new free lives that their children, that their progeny would enjoy in the promised land. And as a result, not only Shouldn't they have complained, but they should have been thankful for God kept his promises and God was preparing them. All right, so how does this apply to us? Well, 
We all have wilderness experiences, don't we? We're not in the Sinai Desert, but we experience challenges in our lives. We experience the challenges of illness, unemployment, job instability, financial struggle. We experience the challenges of loss, loss of loved ones or loss of relationships. We experience the challenges of mental illness, of, of depression, anxiety, fear, so many things. There's so many wilderness experiences that we have as people. And like the Israelites' experiences in the Sinai of our wilderness, our wilderness experiences are uncomfortable and they're unpleasant and they're harsh and they're inhospitable and they're uncertain and they're scary. And like the Israelites, when we're in the wilderness, we complain. We complain constantly. How do I know that? Because I have social media. My goodness. Social media is used for, you know, bad reasons a lot of the time. And then the rest of the time it's used to complain, I think. And even though we can read about the Israelites and we can clearly recognize that is just dumb that you want to go back to slavery. Like, we see how illogical that is, that they wanted to choose slavery over freedom. We see it in them. By the way, you know why they wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt? Because the food was better. Seriously, here it is. I just wanted to show it to you from Exodus 16. The Israelites said to them, here, check this out. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. In other words, we're out here free. Granted, we're in the desert. We're trying to head our way to the promised land. We're free. But they go, you know what? It had been better if we stayed in Egypt to die. Why? Because there we sat around pots of meat. We ate all the food we wanted. Our bellies were nice and full. So we might have been dying. We might have been slaves. But at least our bellies were full. But they were saying to Moses, you brought us out into this desert to starve. Can you, can you believe that? They, this really happened. Sure, we were beaten and abused as slaves in Egypt, but at least we had plenty of meat to eat, so there's that. Now, we can see that's silly. That's a mistake. But when we find ourselves in the wilderness, we do the same thing. When our bad choices lead us to bad situations, that doesn't seem to stop us from going right back to those bad choices as soon as we can get back there. We do it all the time. We always go back to those bad decisions that got us in trouble in the first place. But God wants so much more for us. God wants to fulfill his purpose in us and his purpose through us. And as God's people, as people who've admitted that we're sinners, that we're totally incapable of living the perfect life that would be necessary to make ourselves acceptable to God. In other words, we admitted that we just need to surrender. But we believe that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, lived the perfect life for us, but he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, the penalty that we deserve, and he was buried but he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven and he promised to return one day to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. If we believe that and we commit our lives to God through Jesus so we can enjoy God's gift of eternal life, when we respond to God in obedience, God rewards us with an abundant life. People who live God-centered God lives don't just survive the wilderness times, they thrive in the wilderness times. And it's always a sight to see. And when God's people realize this truth, then we can participate in thanksgiving. We can live with thanksgiving, secure in the knowledge that the God who brings us to the wilderness times will bring us through the wilderness times. Moving on, God trains us in the wilderness. 
So now let's take a look at how we can learn to be thankful that God does that, that God trains us, that God trains his people in the wilderness. We'll move on to verse two in Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness, these 40 years, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his command. So what's Moses saying here? Well, the key to understanding this verse is the word test. The phrase test you in order to know what was in your heart helps us to understand the nature and purpose of what God's testing is all about. Now, the Hebrew word translated test here is the word nasa. Nasa means to uncover a particular positive quality in someone. So that's what a test does, is it uncovers a particular positive quality in someone. So the word testing here means that even when a test involves difficulty or suffering, God intends to use that test to bring something out in us and then to teach us something and to ultimately bring good from the test. So regarding the Israelites, Moses said this, God humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. And in case they didn't catch what God was up to in their lives, Moses said it even more plainly in the next two verses. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. Observe the commands of, your, of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. So God let the Israelites be humbled. God let the Israelites get a little hungry. God made their lives difficult. And by doing that, God let them know that they weren't in control of their own destinies. He was. And then when they realized that and they turned to him, what's the expression? When God is the only thing you have, you'll realize that God is the only thing you need. And when they realized that, they turned to him and then he provided them with food and then he provided them with water and then he gave them adequate clothing and then he equipped them with the strength to wander for 40 years. So God used the wilderness to train his people to be wholly reliant on him. Over the years, their faith in God grew stronger and stronger. And but for that training, they would never have grown. And they could never have survived the wilderness. And when we understand that, when we understand the benefit of being trained for something that God has created us to do, we can live in our wildernesses too. Because all the training that we receive in those wildernesses, even though it seems harsh, even though we don't like it, we can know that it's going to help us. It's going to help us grow, and it's going to help us improve, and it's going to get us closer and closer to God the more we are able to endure it. You ever trained for something? You ever prepared for something? You ever studied for something that was particularly difficult? We've probably all done that, I'm sure. School or work or something physical. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we prepare? Why do we train? Why do we hurt ourselves? No pain, no gain. Why do we do that? We do it so we can perform well when the test comes, right? That's why we do it. That's why we prepare. To live the abundant life to which God has called each one of us, we need to live our lives with full understanding and confidence that the training we receive from God in the wilderness is good for us, that it's training us for something that God wants us to do and that God has created us to do. 
And the harder the training, the greater the assignment. Now, the harder the training, the greater the assignment. When I say that, maybe you're going, hmm, well, after all I've been through this month, God must have some more training for me for some great assignment. Like, this must be an amazing assignment. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's probably what it is. So embrace it. Be thankful for it. The tests that we experience are intended to prepare us, not for more suffering, but for more blessing that will come. Now, in this light, Israel's period in the desert wasn't a punishment, but it was an opportunity for their faith to grow. And when God gives us that kind of opportunity, we should practice thanks living. We should appreciate God's training during the wilderness times. Point three. Now, God will bless us after the wilderness. So the testing in the wilderness prepares us for this blessing that will come after the wilderness. I put all this in one slide here. It's kind of crammed, but I want you to see it all. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills, where you have eaten and are satisfied, when you have eaten and, and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. All right, so after all the Israelites endured, the promised land was a dream come true. Now, to appreciate what a big deal this was, you got to remember that God's promise was spoken to slaves. God's promise was spoken to a people who'd only known the oppression of slavery, who'd only known the hard desert life. So the thought of plentiful water or a variety of crops or luxuries such as olive oil and honey, that was unknown to them. They didn't have such things. That was just a dream. But they were able to fully appreciate these things only after testing, only after the testing that they experienced in the wilderness. And the same thing holds true for us. And we have a proper understanding and appreciation of our wilderness times. But when we don't, those wilderness times can have the opposite effect. Every day, we can see how the varying understandings of those wilderness times impact people who've gone through the wilderness differently. So on one side, here's what I mean. We can see people who've emerged from the wilderness profoundly damaged. There are some people who go through a tragedy or go through a trial and they're just broken for the rest of their lives. The trauma of their tragedy, the trauma of their wilderness experience defines and actually ruins the rest of their days on earth. We know a lot of people that way. I can think of so many people I know that have fallen into that trap. For other people, we can see how God used their horrific wilderness times to change them for the good so that they go out and change the world for God. You guys heard of Compassion International? It's a worldwide ministry where they support orphan children. It's a phenomenal ministry. It's founded by a guy named Wes Stafford. I don't know if you know his story. I can't tell you the whole story now. But as a child, Wes Stafford was brutalized and abused. If you ever get a chance to read his story, it's chilling. It'll make you cry. But instead of letting his tormentors, his lifelong tormentors, define and direct the rest of his life, Stafford went on to find an international ministry that rescues children from poverty, 
that sets them on a course to education that feeds them and clothes them and introduces them to Jesus. So for Stafford, God used that wilderness experience to inspire a blessing. That was amazing. And every day, we hear stories of wilderness veterans, war survivors, cancer survivors, trauma survivors who've used those experiences to give others a hope in the goodness of our God. I have a, a, a girl I met a few years ago who was trafficked as a child, a sex trafficking slave. And now her entire life is devoted to making people more aware of it and to helping get people out of that world. That's called using your wilderness experience to bless others. In this very room, many of us have used wilderness experiences to help others, not just to survive, but to thrive in their relationship with our God. A close friend of mine years ago, as a young man, was diagnosed with a fatal brain tumor. It was a uh, glioblast glioblastoma GBM. Glioblastal multiforme. It was the most dangerous of the brain tumors. They gave him six months. They said, go home, get your affairs in order, six months. But you know what? He fought, and he worked his way through it. He lived another nine years, and he led more people to Jesus in those nine years than he had ever done any time before he was diagnosed with the brain tumor. In fact, not long before he died, he said to me, you know what? I think this brain tumor is the best thing that ever happened to me. Man, talk about using a wilderness experience to change the lives of others. When we understand the wilderness in this way, we can live in a state of thankfulness for the blessings that God provides us after the wilderness. All right, so now we move on to our last point. Don't forget all this stuff. God doesn't want us to forget what we just talked about in Numbers 1 through 3. See, when we finally make it to the other side of the wilderness, we need to remain aware that God got us there, that God was a source of all of our blessings. Because when we do that, we can live thankfully. Moses finishes this up in verse 11. Don't forget, that's what he says. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Don't forget, God got you here. Don't forget him. He'll get you through everything and all of it. God has used the wilderness to train and lead and bless you. And the lessons aren't over. And God doesn't want us to forget the things that he's used to grow us. Forgetting is a failure to give the lessons of the past a significant and proper place in our present. So Moses finishes off the chapter by saying that if Israel forgot the lessons that God taught them in the wilderness, if, if they failed to depend completely on him, to worship him, and to respond to his word, guess what? It ain't going to go well for them. Disaster will surely follow. Disaster will come and wipe out all of those blessings that remembering that God had brought them. Moses reminded them, all the blessings in your lives comes from the very same God of the wilderness. The God who brought you to it will bring you through it and bless you because of it. All that the people had and all that they were came from God. And Moses reminded them because the Israelites had a tendency to forget God. And so do we. Yet, like the Israelites, all we are and all we have is ultimately God's gift. And like the Israelites, that's something that we need to remember also. Now, listen, 
It is natural to look to God in the wilderness when nothing comes easy, when death is always near. It's natural to go, help God. But when things are good, when there's plenty, we as humans, we find it harder to give God his due. But nothing changed. Everything still comes from God. So we need to develop the practice of thanking God every single time we enjoy a blessing and thanking God every time we experience a challenge. So despite their harshness, our wilderness experiences are a gift whose purpose is blessing in the end. And those experiences are designed to remain in our memory once we reach the journey's end, when we get to the good stuff, once again. So, it's Thanksgiving. It's the time we have set aside as a nation to give thanks. And as the people of God, I'd ask that we never lose sight of the fact that we need to remain thankful. We need to remain thankful at all times for all of our wilderness experiences because this year, we need to be practicing thanks living all the time. Because if we can learn to do that, We'll come to understand that our glasses aren't half full. They're actually quite full. And in fact, our cups runneth over. All because we serve a God who loved us so much that he sent his son so that we could live with him abundantly and eternally. Amen? Amen. Won't you pray with me? Father God, thank you for showing us what the wilderness is for teaching us how we're to understand it. So God, as we head into this holiday week and we gather with friends and family and we focus on giving thanks for all that we have, help us also, God, to give thanks for all that you do and all that you've done and all that you've allowed because all of these things come together. For those of us who love you, they come together for our good. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your community, for your church. We thank you for this time. And God, allow us to be thankful. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.